Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Happy New Year. Hope you are doing great. Hope your 2018 was fantastic. Hope your 2019 is even better. We start the new year with a terrific guest today. It's Michael Cruz of Politico. Michael is one of the best political writers around and uh, covers a wide variety of topics at Politico. And it was a joy to talk to him. We went into it on healthcare. We talked about retail politics, kissing babies, right? Remember politicians used to do a lot of that, or at least that was the idea, that was the apocryphal story, was they, they kissed babies. Well, not so much anymore. Now you've got computer models and things like that. Should there be more retail politics, not only at a local level, but at a national level? We get into all that good stuff and uh, much, much more. It's uh, the kind of political discussion that when I do have a guest of that ilk on the show, uh, it's not going to be crossfire. It's going to be going deep on the issues. And Michael does that very well. He's terrific. Uh, check out his work at politico.com and uh, follow him on all manner of social media. Cruz is K-R-U-S-E to make your life easier. And uh, you'll enjoy his work. He's really, really good. Some programming notes now that we're in the new year. Well, gee, I just wrapped up the uh, rundown of all 30 teams this offseason, the offseason extravaganza with the Texas Rangers, I was the 30th team. So you could check all that out at CBSSports.com. Whatever your favorite team is, I got you covered. If you are a fan of one particular team, but hey, you like learning about the other ball clubs too, go read all of them. Please do. Share them with a friend. Go ahead and do all that good stuff. I also wrote about uh, the trend against paying power hitters. That was a longer feature for CBSSports.com. And uh, that was the most recent piece that I wrote just before New Year's hit. So check that out. Uh, very interesting the way the money's going in this sport right now where, I mean, I can remember Prince Fielder not long ago getting $214 million. And that is not the case anymore. And it's not just that Mike Illich is no longer around, unfortunately. It's that trends have changed. Teams are saying, you know what, we're going to hold the line. We feel like there's a lot of power out there. We're not going to pay for it. Even J.D. Martinez last year, he got his 110. But that's, you know, almost just about half of Prince Fielder money. And it was less than what he wanted. He wanted a six-year deal. The Red Sox held firm. They got their guy. He hit in the middle of the order. They won the World Series, but didn't get as much money as you would expect. Not that 110 is bad, but it's quite the change. And it's quite the change considering the landscape of baseball, too, where owners are making so much money. that The sale of um, BAMTECH, the division of MLB, to Disney last year, it created a situation where each team got a payment of $50 million right off the bat. They haven't sold a ticket or a foam finger, or a hot dog, or or TV rights, or anything, and they need to instantly get fifty million dollars. And everybody, you know, saying, "Well, we got to hold the line on salaries, and we're getting near the luxury tax, or whatever." It's crazy how we've adopted that mindset now. As fans, we start doing, we start making excuses for ownership. Well, the you know, payroll's already up nine percent, and I understand there's a budget, so hopefully we can get a nice cheap bargain. This is ridiculous. I, I do not agree with this at all. Uh, the owners are making a disproportionate share of the money. And yes, no player is going hungry, but labor is entitled to their share. And you might see this as a labor impasse at some point. You know, the CBA is up in 2021. That's been the noise now is that the owners are reaping the benefits and players are being left behind, relatively speaking. And uh, if things don't change, we could be headed in that direction. The last labor stoppage was in 1994. The only year in which the World Series was canceled. And uh, we don't want to see that again. So hopefully the owners can come with something that will, uh, and the commissioner, that will ameliorate the situation. Because right now it's just teams kind of 
don't know, people have said, oh, well, maybe it's collusion or whatever. I don't know about that. You know, you hear those whisperings under the uh, radar. It's just a bunch of risk-averse general managers all acting in unison. There's a lot of groupthink in the industry right now. And that's why people like Scott Boris are going to owners and saying, give me all your money for Bryce Harper or whoever, because the GMs aren't going to do it. And sometimes owners act with emotion and GMs just really never seem to. Very, very interesting trends happening in the sport. Keep an eye on all that. Related is the next two pieces coming up for CBSSports.com will be what I used to call the worst contracts in baseball. But that's a dumb construct. That just means that it's the worst from the perspective of the team. Forget that. These are the get-paid all-stars. These are the people that are making money, and maybe their production doesn't match it. But you know what? Get paid, man. You earned it one way or another. Either you had past performance or maybe somebody overreacted to whatever and wanted to pay you. So what? Get paid. We should all get paid. That's where we're at. If you're a school teacher or a firefighter, you should get paid. And if you're a professional athlete, get paid too. That's it. No more worse contracts, no more hey, bargains, whatever. Players are entitled to their share. That's my little rant to start 2012. <laughs> 2019. I've been asleep for seven years, apparently. Uh, and there you go. So please enjoy the latest edition of the John Carey Podcast. It is with Michael Cruz of Politico. Very excited to have on the show this week, Michael Cruz of Politico. Michael, how are you? I am good. How are you, Jonah? I am great. We first connected, I think, when you were working at the probably then St. Pete Times, became the Tampa Bay Times, and you were writing a story about Sam Fold, and you were doing all these pieces for that paper, lots of cool enterprise stuff, award-winning stuff, and uh, always enjoyed reading your stuff back then, and I followed your career, and uh, now you're on to Politico, Politico and doing the exact kind of pieces that I cannot get enough of. And I want to start right off um, with the article that you just published about Connie Schultz. Connie Schultz is the wife of Sherrod Brown, uh, who's a senator for Ohio and potential presidential hopeful in 2020. But it feels like that's selling her woefully short. And I can attest to some of this because I had Senator Brown on my podcast last year. And he was fascinating. And he probably spent 80% of the time talking about how awesome his wife is, uh, and, and, which, which is amazing and fantastic and a sign of a good marriage. But... Um, Tell me a little bit about uh, Ms. Schultz and, and what makes her so interesting as somebody in the public sphere. Yeah, so she's not only the wife yes. of a potential prospect, a potential presidential candidate in Sherrod Brown. She's uh, also a journalist at a time, of course, when the president is waging war on journalists. Uh, she is a uh, a journalist who won a Pulitzer Prize. She's a journalist who won a Pulitzer Prize for her columns, i.e. her opinions, uh, which are uh, liberal, uh, feminist, um, fierce <laughs> and strong. <laughs> and so for all these reasons and then some, she really is um, unusual in the uh, world of 
political spouses. She doesn't exactly fit in. And, and if Sherrod Brown does run for president, um, as he says himself in the piece, um, there really is not a spouse like her in the perspective field. No question. And it's interesting too, because the thing that comes to mind with me is I like a good story, but I always want to know what the evidence suggests. And I'm kind of racking my brain, you know, anecdotally anyway, racking my brain to figure out, is there evidence to suggest that a spouse can help or hinder a campaign? You know, there's a lot of talk about all kinds of factors. I'm not even sure that vice presidents, frankly, or vice presidential uh, uh, nominees or candidates move the needle. But there's all this talk about surround yourself with the right people and people vote for you. You know, I wonder about that. It feels like the, the spouse of potential first lady is almost a step down from that, not necessarily in terms of import, but just in terms of, of impact really. So what's your take on this? Is, is it the kind of thing where it hasn't been important in the past, but it could become an issue in this election that the Republicans could say, Oh, look how left this wackadoo is. His wife is off the reservation. Could, uh, you know, could, could the right say that rather? Could the left say, Hey, wow, she's great. I wasn't sure about this guy, but I'm going to back him in the primary or even in the general. I mean, does this potentially make a difference? You know, I think in the grand scheme of things, a spouse, you know, in normal circumstances makes only so much of a difference. Yeah. I mean, of course, it comes down to the, the, the candidate himself or herself. It comes down to the principle as always, first and foremost. I think in the case of Connie Schultz, it's it's sort of far enough off the chart of where we've been before. And in this particular political moment that she might be uh, more of an asset, according to some, and more of a liability potentially, according to others, right. just because she is so much more out there and would be so much more out there. Uh, if he ran, I mean, I think if he runs, there's going to be some decisions made. Exactly. What does she do? Um, you know, uh, how did she, um, you know, some of her, um, opinions or does she, I think that's still up all up in the air. Of course, up in the air is the candidacy itself. I mean, they're still sort of talking about it. They're still talking about it right now. So we'll see, but, you know, she does come to that perspective campaign with a background um, and with a uh, uh, a potential arsenal that makes her, I think, quite unusual. It, it really does, and it feels like it's a potential change in tack for the Democratic Party if Sherrod Brown were to run and if uh, Connie Schultz were, you know, involved, because it feels like. You know, the Democrats are supposed to be the party of the people, right? They're supposed to be people who represent uh, people in jeopardy. They're supposed to represent the social programs, social safety net, and all that stuff. It's not to say that that's not the case. It's not to say that Hillary Clinton, for example, was not pro-Medicare or, you know, robust unemployment wages or what have you. But it doesn't feel like the message comes across because 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 it feels like there's a little bit of um, true or untrue, an elitist or elite tag attached but here comes sherrod brown who you know granted went to an ivy league school and so forth but he has been unapologetically left 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 maybe not bernie sanders left but pretty darn left you know pro-union in a big way at a time that gee it feels like it's needed when real wages have stagnated for 40 years here comes connie schultz 
who's not only extremely left, but is extremely uh, willing to voice her opinions about women's rights and so forth, and also comes from a working class background. It feels like you talked about the political time and where we are. Feels like they're kind of a perfect couple in that way because everything was tacked to the center. Don't piss off the country, blah blah blah. And now, not sure the Democrats need to do that anymore. Maybe they could just be unapologetically left and actually fight for people who truly need help, rather than you know, okay, suck up to Wall Street and do what you need to do. Well, look, the reason we're having this conversation about Sherrod Brown and the reason they're having the conversation, Sherrod Brown and Connie Schultz, is that he is is atypical in that he can he comes from Ohio, of course, yeah. uh, a, a, a critical state, a state that presumably the Democrats <laughs> uh, need to win back or certainly yes. would like to win back uh, to um, reclaim the presidency. Uh, and he it, it can appeal to. Um, urban liberals, he can appeal and has appealed to uh, black voters. And what makes him unusual is he um, has appealed to um, blue collar uh, Midwesterners, mm-hmm. a constituency, of course, that um, Trump rated to become president. And so he does this thing that not many Democrats do. And to your point about about Connie, she she is almost uh, in some sense, even more authentically than he is, yep. uh, uh, blue collar. Uh, she grew up working class. She, uh, you know, her father, um, was a, a maintenance mechanic. Uh, her mother was a nurse's aide, but she is resolutely blue collar in her roots. Whereas Sherrod Brown, son of a doctor went to Yale. He has fought for, um, labor and blue collar workers and workers period throughout his uh, entire adulthood, which is to say his entire, you know, political career. Um, but uh, Connie Schultz packs sort of an authenticity that um, I would say at the very least augments her husband's um, credentials on this front. And mm. so if that is, if that is actually a path back to presidential power for the Democrats to win back enough of those traditional ancestral Democrats in Midwestern states like Ohio and, of course, uh, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, that part of Pennsylvania, et cetera, and that's not a half bad way to think about the 2020 presidential race, mm-hmm. then that's why we have Sherrod Brown even in the mix. Um, and that's why I think Connie Schultz comes into focus as like a really interesting piece potentially of that perspective presidential candidacy. A quick comment and then bounce the next question, but I have to read this little uh, letter sent by Sherrod Brown to Connie Schultz uh, a bunch of years ago, back in 2002. Ms. Schultz, where did the plane dealer find you? You are a breath of fresh air. Your remind your writing reminds me of that of uh, Barbara Kingsolver, one of my favorite living writers. Best wishes, Sherrod Brown, Lorraine, Ohio. That led to a date and led to them getting married. Phenomenally awesome. That is the best pickup move ever, I suppose. Say how incredible a writer she is, and mean it, by the way. And then uh, lead to this wonderful and uh, relationship that's now been going since two thousand and three. I guess it is, which is pretty cool. The question I want to ask you is about charisma. Because if you look at presidential elections, it's great. It's great that uh, Sherrod Brown has been fighting for the rights of working class folks. It's great that Connie Schultz comes from that background. It's great that they're smart. It's great that they seem to be empathetic. 
I, I liked Senator Brown. I imagine if I met with Connie Schultz, I'd probably like her too. But when you get down to it, elections are often won based on how you do political theater. There's no question that the current president beat the challenger at that. There's no question. That is largely the, that and the kind also, as we mentioned, working class folks struggling and looking for a different alternative and they, that's fine. You look at, uh, Bush v. Gore, you know, aside from the actual Bush v. Gore case, Bush won in large part because he seemed more likable than Al Gore. And you know, these things happen. So if you come down to it, it does this Sherrod Brown, Connie Schultz ticket of sorts, even though she's not the VP per se, bring about that kind of reachability, bring about that kind of likability. People are going to say, you know what? Yeah, okay, whatever, with the bona fides, this is what they did for unions or whatever. I like these people. I want to vote for them. Or is it just that they're kind of, they're good at being policy wonks, they're good at enacting initiatives, but you know what? Trump is a force of nature and he's not going to be beaten. <laughs> I mean, look, um, we'll see. I, I don't have, I don't have these answers. I have no crystal ball. Sure. If I ever had a crystal ball, I certainly don't have one now and nobody does. Um, you know, when I think about this that you this the the themes you just brought up the mm -hmm. topic you just brought up in this question the last two presidents as different as they are in almost every respect did share a certain celebrity quotient yep. a uh, sort of a, a momentum in their campaigns um, definitely in 08 for Obama and certainly in 16 for Trump um, that had a little bit of a rock star quality to it. Mm -hmm. um, the celebrity factor matters for better or for worse. Personally, I wish it mattered less. Yep. <laughs> we're not uh, actually supposed to be electing a celebrity in chief. We're supposed to be electing a commander in chief. Yet, um, that is the reality of where we are. And so, I think you have to take into account a prospective candidate's ability to whip up a little bit of a, um, a feeling, um, a, a certain in, um, intangible quality that makes people want to watch, that makes people think being a supporter of the said person is kind of cool and the in thing. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the sprawling field of potential um, Democrats who are weighing a bid to become the nominee to try to take down Trump in 2020, assuming Trump is still there, yep. <laughs> um, you know, there are not that many people, maybe no people, who come immediately to mind as having that quality. I'd say maybe the person who has demonstrated the capability the most is Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> and yeah. we'll, see, we'll see if he runs and we'll see if that translates into... Um, Pit stops in Manchester and Des Moines? I don't know. I, we're just going to have to see. But the 
list of senators, of Senate Democrats considering runs, um, not one of them really equals Obama or Trump in this respect. Um, I mean, we can sort of get as granular and nitty gritty as we want and start ticking off names and uh, uh, talking about them individually, but I, like nobody, nobody brings Obama level knownness or charisma, rock star quality, and I don't think anybody, politics or otherwise, at this point, brings quite what Trump does uh, to that race in 2020. I love that Beto O'Rourke is considered um, this potentially strong candidate, even though he lost. And granted, it was Texas. But it's interesting. The only corollary that I could think of is literally Sherrod Brown's favorite show, which is The West Wing, where Jimmy Smith's character loses a race for Congress and then decides he's going to run for president and wins out of Texas, in fact. So I don't know. Maybe this is the Jimmy Smith's uh, redux. We will see. Yeah, I mean, I look, I just think I think we need to get past the holidays and we need to get into 19 and we need to start watching uh, people show up yeah. in New Hampshire and in Iowa and elsewhere and just see the response and gauge who might, um, who might, you know, jump to the fore. I mean, the thing is about Obama, he was already Obama at this point in time. Yes. Uh, you know, at this point in time in that cycle, uh, I don't think people thought he was the favorite. Hillary Clinton was the favorite, but still he was very much a known entity, certainly among politicos, just because of, if nothing else, his speech in 04 mm-hmm. in Boston at the convention. So he was ready to be a very attractive challenger. And, you know, heading into this stage of that cycle. And there is nobody like that. I think it's fair to say in the democratic field and the prospective democratic field at this point. It seems like when you look at elections, it's, you know, it often does matter in terms of charisma. But if there's a one or a one A or what have you, that it's the economy that how much better off are people and and a vote for Trump was not only a vote for his charisma or his whatever it is. It was a vote uh, from people who didn't feel that they were better off. In other words, unemployment was low and the stock market was doing well and that was all fine and dandy. But we go back to real wages and unions got decimated a long time ago. And the end result was that you had people whose fathers and grandfathers and were doing great. You know, they could great, get pretty lucrative and steady factory jobs with a high school education and do extremely well in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Ohio. And today that's not really available to people. It's much more difficult. And so, I'm sorry, go go ahead. I mean, it's hard to talk at this point, either in the 16 cycle or heading as we are into the 20 cycle about the economy, because I think actually the problem is that there is not a the economy. Yes. There are, there, there is an economy for the people who are doing well, and this is an oversimplification, but there's an economy for people who are doing well, and there is an economy for the people who aren't doing well, and who haven't been doing well for a long, long time, and who, frankly, won't be doing well unless some serious systemic changes are made, public policy changes. And the, therefore, the political calculation here is who can we win? You know, which candidates can win which people? And, uh, you know, to what extent do uh, those people from the different camps, so to speak, come out and vote? And, 
uh, this, it's, it is this bifurcation of, um, economic health that is actually, in some respects, the root cause of, of, of all things that ail our public sphere at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, if, if there, it gets back to Sherrod, Sherrod Brown and Connie Schultz, and the only reason we're talking about them is perspective, you know, in a presidential way, you know, who are the Democrats who can talk to in a credible way all those people in the middle of the country who jump to Trump because nothing is working for them and it hasn't been working for them for a long time. Now, I don't mean to say that they, of course, are the only reason Trump won. Lots of people in lots of places, in lots of different financial scenarios, voted for Trump and made him win. Yep. But certainly if he hadn't peeled those people away from not only ancestral uh, democratic leanings, um, but apathy, frankly, I mean, motiv- motivating them to come out and yes. to vote for the first time in a while, um, he, he would not be the president. And so, you know, who are the Democrats, I think, who can appeal to those gettable voters who are sort of constantly looking for change? Because frankly, uh, the status quo continues to not work for far too many people in this country. Well, and I think that brings us to the topic of healthcare. And I love the piece that you did where you visited Levittown to look at, uh, you know, kind of a typical suburban swing district and what, and what's going on over there. Uh, pretty split in terms of political proclivities, but one thing that people seem to agree on, especially if they're over 50 or 60, is healthcare system stinks. And please color me naive, but it seems to me that this should be the biggest no-brainer of all time, and perhaps it's because I'm talking to you from Canada where we have universal healthcare and everything is pretty cut and dry. <laughs> Lucky yeah. me. But if you look at the healthcare situation, there was healthcare before President Obama, and then there was healthcare after President Obama. And before, you had a situation where there was employer-provided health care. That was a very great feature of American society. A lot of people have excellent health care, very cheap, because they work for Company X. That's great. It's fantastic. It's not available to everybody. It's not available if you're self-employed. It's not available if you're a contract worker. It's not available if you don't work enough hours. It's not available for a bunch of reasons. Sometimes it can be available, but if you have a pre-existing condition, it's a problem. Coverage of your kids can be an issue. There are all these big gaps in the system. Tens of millions of people were not covered. So President Obama and his administration enacted a plan to produce a health care system that would help all these people. And it worked. And a lot of people got coverage. It is stupefying to me, setting aside whatever political proclivities I might have. If you take everything else aside and throw the entire American political system to the side for a minute and just talk about health care, how could anybody, and I read this article, say, well, both parties mucked it up, blah, blah, blah. Are you crazy? One party wants to throw anything to do with health care in the toilet, wants no part of it, wants to keep those funds for lower taxes and and what have you. And the other party is desperate to enact uh, legislation to help health care costs with gusts up to... In some cases, some Democrats going for universal health care. How did we get to this place where something is so obviously obvious and yet a large segment of the country cannot comprehend that one party is extremely for helping you get better health care and the other party is extremely against it? I mean, that's a, that's a, uh, it, it might seem like a simple question, but obviously it's a vexing question in this country and I think 
to some extent it comes down to who has what, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, uh, if I have good health care or relatively good health care, but I'm going to have, I think, slightly less good health care, if everybody has health care, if it's more evenly distributed, but everybody has slightly, I mean, I'm not saying this is the way it would go, yeah. but uh, if, if the implementation of truly universal health care would lead to, um, you know, my inability to um, have better health care than uh, my neighbor or, you know, anybody else, well, then maybe you're inclined to uh, have a more, you know, market-based, I get it and you don't, I want the best health care uh, sort of scenario. I mean, I think that's you know, sort of where where we have um, been, we being this country, the United States of America, has been so unable to reach some sort of compromise, um, you know. I think you mentioned the Levittown, Pennsylvania story. There is broad agreement, though, that whether you have health care or not, whether it's through your employer or through the Affordable Care Act um, or through any other means, it is not ideal, <laughs> which is yeah. which has led to huge frustrations. I mean, I'm I consider myself extremely fortunate to have the healthcare that I do through my employer, through Politico, but you know, a chunk comes out of my check and, um, you know, I'm uh, fortunate to be able to, to, to cover myself and my family. Um, but, uh, sure isn't free. And so, uh, everybody's paying for it somehow or not. And I think obviously there was huge pushback, um, including from many people who hadn't had health care in the past, huge pushback to uh, any sort of mandate to have to have health care or to pay a penalty if you don't have health care. You know, rather rather sort of just use the emergency room system. You know, I am uh, far from some sort of health care uh, expert politico, as many people who are. Yes. Um, but it is it is sort of um, in, in the broadest possible sense kind of this ongoing um, mass uh, frustration that this seems to be just an unfixable, intractable piece of American life. It is a giant chunk of the economy. It is um, a huge part of uh, political back and forth and political feuding. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's sort of one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. Um Forever, forever and ever, <laughs> the entirety of my existence, right? And so, uh, the chances for, um, some sort of breakthrough, uh, shoot, uh, the government, uh, isn't even functioning, uh, to just run, let alone fix something like healthcare. What I appreciated too, it's a good segue into the next piece, was you wrote about Joe Manchin, the, um, senator from West Virginia, and he votes has voted with President Trump more often than any other Democrat. And yet, when the time came for a uh, vote that would have basically gutted Obamacare, the ACA, he did not vote in favor, which was interesting. And it goes to appreciating what his constituents are going through. And, you know, it seems to me that that is such a great formula for politics, right? That if you want to cut things a certain way, then that's what should be done because you have 
all these cases in America, I'll use one example, okay? Let, let's use gun control for a second. And I understand that's another uh, very fraught topic. But the bottom line is that the majority of Americans are for some form of gun control, not necessarily a total ban on weapons or what have you, but against bump stocks, against uh, semi-automatic weapons or certain things like that. So if you really voted with the will of the people, it would often go right for you. Sometimes it would go wrong, by the way, because the majority of Americans for a while were against gay marriage, even though that was obviously a thing that should be done. If you want to get married, get married. But it, it's an interesting thing. And yet the political calculus, for whatever reason, doesn't always go that way. In fact, it often doesn't go that way. This goes back to what I was talking about before with the way the Democrats feel, oh, we have to be everything to everybody and we can't just you know, stick to our principles, what have you. Joe Manchin might be disliked in a lot of areas, but he really puts his finger in the wind and says, what is it that people want? And then he seems to give it to them as best as he can. Should there be more politicians like Joe Manchin who aren't necessarily in lockstep with their party, but just look at who their voters are and whether it is for self-preservation, if you're being cynical, or for the greater good, say, all right, I'm going to give you this, but not that. You're going to get this, but not that. Okay, so Joe Manchin obviously is a senator, uh, but, yep. you know, there are um, 435 members of the House of Representatives, and in that phrase is representative. And in, I mean, maybe this is um, a simplistic uh, reading of politics and naive, but those people, including senators, should should be representatives of their people of their yes. constituents. And so, you know, use the phrase finger in the wind. And that has obviously, kind of, uh, you know, self-preservational sure. connotations. But the other way to look at that is to know your people and to know what they want. And I think, you know, every member of the house has what, 700 something thousand people to theoretically keep in mind when they vote. Um, and when they come up with their own positions, it's not actually what they believe, right? It should be some sort of, um, composite of what their constituents believe. And Joe Manchin as a representative of the entire state of West Virginia, uh, has been doing this for so long. Um, and he has developed sort of this intuitive sense, uh, for what, West Virginians care about, mm -hmm. think about, want from their people in Washington, want from their people in the state capital of Charleston. And in many cases, maybe more than some or many other politicians, votes according to that. Now, I don't mean to suggest that this is some sort of magnanimous, you know, um, always just voting according to the wants of the people, there is certainly pragmatism involved and political calculation involved. Um, but he has always been, in my estimation, for whatever that's worth, among the best at feeding his people and uh, weighing sort of what he can get away with. I need If I vote on this this way, I'm going to have to vote on that um, the other way, and it's all going to even out in the end. And, you know, he's a guy who's lost a single election. Um, in a lifetime of politics, West Virginia is an unusual place. It's, it's not as populous a place. So there is the possibility, even, even approaching the possibility for someone like Joe Manchin to have a lifetime of politics in a place like West Virginia and actually physically meet like a not insignificant yeah. portion of the population and therefore have these conversations and 
uh, you know, feed kind of a machine that then spits out a, 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 a read, if you want to look at it this way, for what, what people want, what enough people want, uh, what he can get away with on which votes. And I think, frankly, that's why he's won as much as he has for as long as he has there, even as a Democrat. And obviously at this point, an exceptionally red state. I mean, one of the more Trump supportive states. Yep. Uh, Number two. Uh, for two right behind Wyoming. Uh, and yet there's Joe Manchin, Democrat. And, you know, the Democrats in Washington can and do um, often bemoan, um, you know, how centrist or even conservative he sometimes is as a Democrat. But the fact of the matter is he's a Democrat and he's a he's a D in the Senate. And um, that's part of his leverage as well. You know, if you want to get rid of me, we're never going to win West Virginia again. Not in, not in anything remotely um, like the political breakdown we have today in this country. And so, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate sort of the um, the tactician in Joe Manchin in West Virginia is uh, a fascinating um, um, political playground. And he's he's, you know, at the forefront, you know. It's interesting you table you label it as or one of your sources labeled it as retail politics, which seems very buzzwordy. But the idea, whatever you want to call it, retail politics, kissing babies, whatever it is, is attractive. It's seductive to those of us who care about politics and all that stuff, and maybe care about people's opinions. And it's a very different story when you're running a presidential election. It is impossible to kiss every baby. You can't kiss one out of every six hundred babies, probably. But I'm wondering if there's value in it. Trump was, you know, had his own platform. He was, you know, the host of The Apprentice. He's Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton has her background, and obviously she was a celebrity in her own right, although obviously some of that came with negative attention. In the next presidential election, let's say that a Democrat is going out and trying to beat Trump. Should he or she try to pound the pavement harder than his or her predecessors have and really try to kiss as many babies as possible? Or is this the case where you're projecting a national image, you've got computer banking, you've got things like that, and these things don't matter on the presidential level at anywhere close to as much as they matter if you're running for the House of Representatives or the Senate? I mean, look, everything matters. Um, Retail politicking, quote-unquote, is a uh, is a skill that should be in every politician's tool bag. I say that um, uh, with the understanding that uh, this is not something that Trump employed a whole heck of a lot of in the 2016 presidential no. election. It's not that he's incapable of doing that uh, face-to-face, person-to-person, obviously well before he was a politician um, started running for president. He you know, ha- has that has that uh, skill, has that tool in his toolbox. Uh, he can be in a one-on-one way, um, not charming, certainly um, charismatic. It goes back to that kind of X factor that is hard to define. But he certainly has that. Yet, his secret, well, one of his secrets to success in 2016, I think, was the opposite of that in some sense. It's, it's an understanding that you know, uh, electronic media is the far more efficient, far more effective at this point transmitter of a vibe, of a feel, uh, of what people think, um, of you and think who, uh, about who you are and what your priorities are. Um, you know, he, uh, on the, on the campaign trail, um, 
does not kiss babies hardly at all. He <laughs> hardly shakes hands. Um, you know, he is a behind the lectern, uh, on your television screen, um, you know, active on Twitter kind of, um, 21st century candidate. And so <clears throat> that I think has contributed to a perhaps, um, if it's a zero sum thing, a diminishment of the value of retail as you know, political folks term it. Um, really, it just comes down to an ability to make a connection, right? And there are a variety of ways to make a connection. And ideally, the best politicians make connections in all sorts of ways, can do it in, on a rope line, can do it in a, in a diner, yep. in all these kind of cliche places where they go and have to go. But again, Trump, you know, think about think about Trump in a diner. Can you think of a single Trump diner moment in 2016? Uh, it's been it feels like it's been 50 years at this point since he first ran. But, um, you know, that is not what you think of when you think of Trump. You think of him in front of uh, in front of supporters at a rally. That's his that's his set piece, not the not the, uh, you know, person to person handshaking rigmarole at a at a uh, at a diner in New Hampshire. Well, and that's the paradox of Trump, right? That he's this guy who's unbelievably wealthy and has always had a gilded life and yet did reach people who are striving to be more. It feels like that's very America. It's very aspirational. It's very American dream. And, and it's, you could go at it two ways. You could be somebody who gets down in the muck and, and comes from that background and does it that way. Or you could be somebody who people can look up to. And I, this is a uh, attempt at a segue to Elizabeth Warren, which is another piece that you wrote recently that I really liked. And to me, if I'm looking at a politician, here are the two things I care about. Number one, they're smart. Number two, they care about the things that I want them to care about. Those are the two things. So Elizabeth yeah. Warren is definitely smart. She's a professor at Harvard. She's written books. She's there's, there's no denying that she's smart. The thing that she seems to care about more than anything else is fixing the middle class. Her first book, Income Trap, why middle class mothers and fathers are going broke. It's right there in the title. This is what she's been uh, advocating for her whole career. First is kind of a, a wonky uh, you know, policy sort of person and then somebody who went on Dr. Phil as your great story details, somebody who now has presidential aspirations. But I look at Elizabeth Warren and the cynic, the cynic in me says she's a Harvard professor. And I grant you that Obama was also came from the same background, but she's a Harvard professor. I, I'm going to say this. I cringe when I say this, but she is female and that there's always going to be a potential for misogyny when it comes to comes to elections. Uh, she, is it necessarily, she does, she has had some charismatic moments, you know, she persisted, there have been some flashpoints, but doesn't necessarily carry a stadium. I wonder if despite the fact that she's the perfect blend on paper of somebody who's smart and cares about pe what people want, and by the way, is from Oklahoma and is not somebody of a gilded existence, on paper she should be a magnificent candidate, I don't even think she wins the primary. I think that Elizabeth Warren is a fatally flawed candidate uh, wow. for these superficial reasons that I think that she yeah. – so, I mean, what, what say you on this? Because she seems to be one of the big favorites. I, I'm just – maybe I'm being cynical, but I, I kind of don't see it. Well, again, I just want to—I just want to see these people show up and yeah. um, and and see the response uh, that they all elicit. You know, you point out a real kind of open question, and I don't have the answer to it yet, and I don't think anybody does. The question is, 
can a woman, maybe particularly a woman of color, mm-hmm. beat Donald Trump in 2020, given what we saw in 2016? Yeah. I don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> if that's if that's the question that is going to be posed in the 2020 election, if that's the choice we have, I suppose we, the voters of the United States of America, can try to answer it again. It was answered uh, definitively in 2016, and I think that is why um, you know, many people are pondering this at this point. If in some in some um, story way the what's the right word a response to Trump's Trump's triumph in 2016 certainly would be a victory in 2020 by somebody who is in some sense the polar opposite Kamala Harris say Right. Yeah. Another great candidate on paper, by the yeah. way. Smart, cares about the things you should care about, qualified, terrific. Really a fan. Go ahead. It all, it, it all comes down though to the reality, the undeniable reality that voters, which is to say people don't vote, or many, enough, enough, don't vote based on purely rational and logical decisions. Yes. It is a, it is a, um, you know, complicated cocktail of personal pasts and biases and, um, you know, gut feels. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch how, Democratic primary voters collectively respond to the questions you just posed because those are the questions, right? I mean, because I, I think more than even maybe usual, the top uh, qualifier for the Democratic nominee heading into 2020 is can this person slay the dragon. Right. And the combination of characteristics of this particular dragon slayer is actually pretty elusive Hmm. because we just don't know. Yes. What, who, who, not only who is this person, but what are the right combination of characteristics of policy priorities? The ability to quash voter ID laws. That's it. That's all you have to do. Do that and you'll win. That, now that's me being really cynical, but anyway, go ahead. Uh, it's just a lot to, it's a lot to think about. And I, I, heading into 2019, I, I'm, I'm eager to the point of impatient to get the show on the road and, um, start watching and attempting to make sense of and to chronicle this, you know, almost two year long process that will determine which person of the, you know, close to three dozen potentially um, 
people who who will who will run for the right to run against Trump, um, which of those people will scoot through, and um, and why? You know, and then and then we'll watch. Um, you know, there's the there's the sort of permanent caveat that it's a long way to go between now and November 2020. Lots can happen on both sides. We'll see. But assuming Trump is there, um, is the incumbent, uh, which has its own special kind of power, um, even in normal times, uh, you know, it is a tall task to take down an incumbent president. And it is a tall task, I'd say in particular, to take down, um, to take down this, uh, this incumbent president. And so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michael Cruz, you're one of my favorite storytellers in any realm, politics, sports, business, any kind of writing. I really enjoy your work. I have for many years. Uh, loving the pieces you've done recently. Check out Michael's work at Politico.com, uh, Politico Magazine, and all that good stuff. Uh, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jenna.